Welcome to Becoming Byzantine, a webinar series focused on the Catechism, Christ or Pascha. In this series, we explore the faith, worship, and life of Byzantine churches. I'm Father Daniel Dozier, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Father Deacon Anthony Dragani, Mr. Robert Klesko, and Father Michael Wynn. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the series. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Uh, welcome, everyone, to our uh, Becoming Byzantine webinar series, our next episode. Um, happy Cheese Fair Sunday. And as the sun has set now, we've now entered into the Great Fast. So um, we're praying for you all that you have a blessed uh, fasting season and that the Lord touches your hearts um, in a new way. And uh, we come to appreciate and love his resurrection more and more. So it's good to be with everybody again. Um, our wonderful panelists, um, quick introduction of everybody. Uh, first of all, we're very, very happy to have a special guest this evening uh, with us for the whole 90 minutes. Uh, Father Michael Wynn is our special guest this evening. Uh, Father Michael is a priest of the Ukrainian Catholic Archeparchy of Winnipeg up there in Canada. And he is the English language editor of Christ Our Pascha, which is the catechism of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, which we've been using throughout this series. So it's wonderful to have you with us this evening, Father Michael. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks. Wonderful. And as always, we're joined by Father Daniel Dozier, um, who is a priest of the Ruthenian Catholic Eparchy of Phoenix. Um, author of the 20 Answers on Eastern Catholicism uh, book published by Catholic Answers, and kind of the uh, grand puba of uh, in-ministry development, which is uh, the sponsor of this Becoming Byzantine series. So it's good to have you with us again, Father Daniel, as always. Thank you, Robert. Glad to be yeah. And also our regular guest, uh, Father Deacon Anthony Dragani, uh, deacon, a doctor, a college professor, and uh, the creator and webmaster of the very, very helpful uh, east2west.org. That's east, the number two, west.org. Um, kind of a one-stop shop for all things Byzantine. At least it's uh, been very, very helpful in my life. So good to have you with you again. Uh, Always a joy being with you guys. Good. And we're joined by Mrs. Bianca Gill, um, wife mother uh probably going to see your your little one on camera <laughs> at some point they always tend to butt in at the uh the best and worst of times um she's also the one who coordinates our book giveaway so she came up with that very very complicated algorithm which i'm sure elon musk is very interested in purchasing from us um and she keeps all of us in line so bianca it's great to have you with us thank you and me my name is Robert Klesko. Um, I've got six little ones probably hovering outside my door ready to bust in at any minute. Um, so that's my main job. Um, I'm also studying to uh, become a deacon for the Archeparchy of Pittsburgh. Hopefully I'll, I'll serve down here at my uh, Melkite Parish, St. George Melkite Catholic Church in Birmingham, Alabama. So that is my role. And I'm going to try to walk us through this section of the catechism and a little uh, special material today as well. Um, just a reminder to everyone, this series is also co-sponsored by the Byzantine Catholic Eparchy of Phoenix, so we're grateful for their assistance. 
And of course, we cannot do this without people actually watching and people supporting. Um, so thank you for our participants. Thank you for being here and giving part of your Sunday evening to be with us. Um, you can support this ministry by making a donation to continue our work. Um, you can also support us by um, checking out this series on YouTube. I'm going to post the YouTube link to our uh, this uh, our channel. Please like and subscribe. Uh, if you've missed any of the past videos, you can catch up there. Uh, leave a like, subscribe to the channel. That helps the algorithm on YouTube. Unfortunately, Bianca is not involved with YouTube, so she can't kind of help out with that. But if you go and like and subscribe, um, and then post on social media. Um, let's spread this series around, keep things going, um, because really what we're trying to do is touch minds and hearts with the witness of Byzantine Catholicism. So the more people who get involved in that process, um, I think the better. So beyond that introduction, um, to a more serious topic, um, I know we've all been kind of uh, shocked by events in Ukraine. Um, and uh, Father Michael and uh, Deacon Anthony are Ukrainian Catholic. Um, I know Father Daniel and myself being Ruthenian, um, the Ukrainians are our brothers and sisters, absolutely. Um, so it's been a rough week for all of us. Uh, it's been a rough week for Christians of goodwill. Um, so we thought uh, we would be remiss if we didn't spend a little time, not too much time, and we don't want to make this political, and we don't want to make, we don't want to take this away from the spiritual focus and the catechetical focus of this series. Um, but we did want to take advantage of having Father Michael on and just, just ask him to share, uh, Father, if you could share just what's on your heart about the events in the past week, um, uh, and kind of just guide our audience through and just uh, really just share what you would like about the current situation. And, and, and especially a sp if you have a spiritual message for us, which I know you do. <laughs> Blessed be God. Well, I can only look at this through the eyes as a Christian, because that's who I am. And um, it's a, it's such a great pain that uh, the, the, uh, the, the events that are unfolding um, today the last couple of days and so forth. It's been building up and building up for so long. And, and people say, oh, it's been building up just like over these last six months, but it's much longer than that. And, um, you know, it's, it, it has to do, with, it, it has to do with, um, I, I would say the great evil of communism, which is really a, um, a, a horrible, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, morphing of Christianity and turn, kind of turning it in, uh, turning it in, inward looking and so forth. And it just devoids all value, all worth, all dignity of any human person. I mean, but that's communism as a system. And as we know that the, the, the Soviet Union broke, broke up, I was, I was in one of the squares of Ukraine in 1990 when the representative of that of Lviv, Ukraine, came back and it had said we declared sovereignty in Moscow, and uh, I was playing trumpet in a marching band visiting Ukraine at that time, discerning becoming Ukraine Catholic. So um, that event, and then uh, just after we left Ukraine in nineteen 
1990, the statue of Lenin fell in front of the opera house and everything. And then Ukraine gained its independence again because it was independent before. <clears throat> and so um, as Ukraine uh, became free and independent and was learning how to be a sovereign nation, um, there's a lot of uh, a lot to be learned because they had been under communist rule forced upon them for so long. And um, so there's a bit of a still of a communist mentality that still goes on. You know, the rector of our seminary in in just outside of Kiev, it's called the Kievan Seminary, the Three Holy Hierarchs. He was told by our patriarch that when they were building that seminary, and I was there in the middle of it, of it being built, he wasn't allowed to offer bribes or to be involved in any bribes whatsoever, which mean they had their gas cut off for a period of time in winter. You know, and, and so kudos to them that they were strong ethically and that communist spirit was broken with, with those people. So um, there's that that's going on. Um, just from, the, from, from, Ukraine, from Ukraine itself, uh, there was a pro-Russian um, president, Yanukovych, who ended up getting, because in 2014 with the Revolution of Dignity, he ended up taking the uh, Ukraine's own um, military and police and turning it on its own people. And we saw the Heavenly Hundred being born uh, at that uh, at that protest, but the people chased him out, and he went back to he went back to to Russia, and then we had a series of presidents there, and and as we see, there's still there's still some unethical behavior that's taking place, and lo and behold, the TV comic who everyone thought could never be a good president is turning out to be a, an incredible man who. When the U.S. offered to get him out of there, he says, I don't want to ride. I'm here. I have to be here. And um, he's been such a strong support uh, of, uh, for the people there. I don't know if he's actually even Christian or not. I have no idea. Um, because there is a larger secularism from the West that is creeping in quickly into Ukraine, right? I, I believe he's Jewish, uh, Father. He's I, Jewish? Okay. Yeah, someone has said he's yeah. Jewish. So the Jewish rabbi of Kiev, Rabbi Bleich, is amazing. I've I've met him a few times, too. And uh, you know when he speaks English, he sounds like he's from New York. I tell you something. <laughs> I told him, we'll have a cup of coffee after, Rabbi. He goes, sure thing. And so anyhow, um, uh, so there's, a, there's something very wonderful happening in the spirit of Ukrainians. Now, from the from a from the perspective of the church, um, it's it's quite amazing that the, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, the Patriarch Svetoslav, is hunkered down in the crypt, and he's giving a daily message every day, and they're quite inspirational. And you can see as the days go on, it's been four days that the bags under his eyes are getting bigger and so forth. So, uh, I I know him personally. I've met him a few times. He's a man of deep prayer. Um, and um, he, he's also very stubborn, which is not a bad thing in this case, you know. So he is staying there, and he's recognized publicly all the other bishops and clergy who are remaining in place. Uh, many of them have sent their wives and families to safety while they remain in place in order to, uh, in order to serve the Christ faithful. 
and to build them up. And something beautiful he wrote today, he said, the churches are closed in Kiev because there's a, a very strict curfew on right now. They don't want anyone in the streets. And so the patriarch has told all his priests, go to where the people are. So they've been down into the tunnels of the subway to serve divine liturgy for the people. And I thought that's that's very interesting. It's not in the catacombs, but it's catacombic-like, you know? And um, so there's some some beautiful things that are happening. Of course, there are still many people who have died and, and um, much property lost. And there are many refugees trying to get across the border. I was speaking to a priest here in Canada. His family in Ukraine are trying to get over to Poland. We found out it's a 60-hour wait at the border just to, just to get processed. And even if you drop them off somewhere else, you still have to get processed properly. So it's a long time. Um, I, I'm, I'm, uh, my heart is broken because Ukraine and Russia are from Kiev and Rus. It's the same starting point. And where Prince, the great Prince Volodymyr or Vladimir in Slavonic uh, accepted Christianity, I think because he had a Baba who just wouldn't stop praying. And I heard a Christian comedian years ago, Mike Warnke, he said, if you've got an old woman praying for you, just give up because she doesn't know how to shut up. So you might as well give up everything. So I told my, my congregation this this morning, my people, and I said, so all you who are grandmothers, don't stop praying. It'll work. Keep praying. And I think that Olga uh, was a, a big influence upon Volodymyr and where he embraced Christianity. So we come from one root. And Putin has said brother countries, and that he's not mistaken in that. He is mistaken in that they're they're the same, one big, and 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 the, but there's there's differences that have grown up over the years, you know, and uh, so I'm I'm my heart is broken because of this, and the and the fact that even not only the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Canada of, of uh, Ukraine uh, in Ukraine that was recognized by Patriarch Bartholomew with the Thomas a number of years ago, but also the Ukrainian Orthodox Church Moscow Patriarchate has been saying this is an unjust war and everything. So it tells you that there, it's a very complicated situation. It's more than uh, it's more than just one country taking over another. There's an idealism that's going on. Um, personally, and, and this is my personal belief, I think that Putin is uh, delusional and wants uh, the old days of uh, the Soviet Union and or uh, when there was a tsar, you know, and uh, an emperor, a king, and that he would love to be the first to have that reestablished. And so um, I've heard him speak recently, and his, uh, I was just reading before we started tonight, an article by uh, Dr. Adam DeVille in, um, uh, what's it called, Catholic, uh, what's this, Catholic World Report. And talking about how, how there's a, a delusion in in Putin's understanding of history and everything. Now, Father George Florovsky, off he wrote when he was speaking in this particular article that he wrote on history. He says there's, it's impossible to have an unbiased history. It's impossible because whoever writes it is biased. 
uh, or it's, it's always the case because it's always uh, personally explained. You can't have an impersonal uh, explanation. And, and we all know we can have all, we, we can all look at a video and we all see different things, <laughs> right? So, and not all videos explain all the truth and so forth. So even the objectification of history is even difficult not to have a bias. Uh, and so um, I'm torn too, because I'm an associate priest of Madonna House and Catherine Doherty is Russian, right? And um, I love her to death, um, you know, and uh, I hope to see her canonized one day. And her, her intercession and her teachings have helped form me as a man and as a priest. And uh, so, um, you know, I, 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 I can't reject that. And so um, I think it's best to understand that this is the Putin-Russian Federation government that is pushing this and not the Russian people. There are many wonderful Russian people. We see even now the protests that are going on. So, so it's, a, it's a very complex situation today. Uh, Zelensky, the president, uh, offered uh, interviews, and there's an English uh, reporter, and he asked for Zelensky to speak in English. And can you make it just a very simple? And he says, it's impossible to make it simple. It is too complex. It's too complex. And so, uh, all and, and uh, recently in Canada, you've heard of our truck convoys here, um, and we've come to well, I've already, I already did mistrust the mainstream media before that, but that just that kind of was the kicking the bucket right there. And so I'm, I'm finding it hard to follow the narratives that go on according to who's giving it. And uh, so um, I only look at about maybe an hour a day at some news articles. And then uh, the rest of the day, I'm tempted, but I don't go and I just offer a prayer. Uh, for for peace. Um, thankfully, they're apparently going to talk on the borders of Belarus in the next couple of days. So this is a positive um, a positive movement, I think. So, but praying, especially asking the Mother of God and the Archangel Michael, the patron of Ukraine. So, yeah, I hope that uh, is helpful for our listeners. And you know, very good. Thank you very much, Father Michael, for, for sharing those words. And, and uh, certainly, I know all of us, especially as we enter into the great fast, um, you know, it's, it's been wonderful hearing the words of Pope Francis um, calling all Catholics to prayer and fasting for Ukraine. Um, so I know that's something that uh, we're all going to enter into that spirit together. Yes, if, Father if I, Michael. If I may just add, you know, um, for my parish today, I... I... I said, what can we do in response to, to this? And I said, I know you're all praying. That's good. That's wonderful. Keep it up. Ask the Mother of God, ask St. Michael the Archangel for their prayers. I said, you can humanitarian relief funds. There are all sorts. Uh, our bishop told us to use uh, the Catholic Near East Welfare Association. I'm sure you know about that in the States. And, and then I said, but what else can we do? I said, well, we can, we can be who we are. We can be the church. And all of us, all of us have kind of, you know, especially as cradle Catholics, have all kind of like 
uh, let things go over the years. And I said, but so today is a day, especially the cheese for a Sunday, just to re, like, like to ask the Lord for the grace to have a reinvigorated faith and to practice it. And so we talked about what we're going to do during Lent, um, you know, but the three pious actions of prayer, almsgiving, and fasting, and, and how that will help us to be better as a local body of Christ. And if we, and if we through God's grace, grow a bit, the entire body benefits from that. And so even our brothers and sisters in Ukraine would be able to benefit from uh, the growth that we experience amongst our local communities. So, Very good. Thank you, Father Michael. Um, back into Christ or Pascha. Um, let's tread some ground that we weren't able to get to uh, during our last uh, webinar. So we left off at the tail end. We talked a little bit about synodality. Um, which I know is a Pandora's box that we won't reopen tonight. But I did want to ask Deacon Anthony, um, because you're a deacon in the Ukrainian Catholic Church. Obviously, we've been talking about Ukraine and Ukrainian Catholicism a little bit this evening. Um, the Catechism talks about the Ukrainian Catholic Church and other Catholic churches as being self-governing. Um, what does that mean? So the language that's used is the word uh, suviuris which means, you know, self-governing in Latin. Uh, but as we know, we discussed before, the Catholic Church is really a communion of churches. You know, there are 24 self-governing churches that come together to make up the one Catholic Church. And each of these self-governing churches has its own hierarchy and its own leadership, but it also has its own source of Christian tradition, has its own heritage. And that affects everything about it, how it celebrates the sacraments, you know, how it lives out the mysteries of the faith, also, uh, a church like this, a self-governing church, is autonomous. It controls its own destiny. And it also has, you know, its own history of martyrs, its own history of saints. And a self-governing church also has a missionary uh, tradition as well. You know, a self-governing church has the, the ability and the desire to spread the faith to others and to help the faith grow. So all those things together, you know, make up a, an entity that's really its own church but yet it's part of the whole Catholic Church as well. So uh, going back to Father Michael's story with the Cardinal, uh, it doesn't sound like under the Pope is quite uh, what we mean by self-governing. No, no. <laughs> you know, I, I hear that term all the time, under the Pope, and I, I know what people mean by that. Uh, they mean that we're you know, in communion with Rome, but, but that language, no. I think, gives the impression of power and subservience. Mm. And that's not what the Petron office is about. It's not about right. lording power over others. It's about being uh, strengthening the brothers, right? That's I think right. the better language, the language of the Vatican is in communion with or in union mm. with, not under. That's right. Very, very important point. Uh, Father Daniel or Father Michael, anything to add? I, I would uh, say, for an example, when Patriarch Svetoslav was elected, um, he was enthroned that following that fo the following Sunday at, at the Church of the Sabor of the Holy Resurrection in Kiev, and then two or three days later he was in Rome, where he went publicly before the Holy Father, to to establish that communion, like publicly and like personally and in public, and it's I, I think the uh, the kiss is an actual embrace and the kiss of peace to each other. 
you know, with the like and so forth. And so this is um, something very important and very tangible for us to see that it's not just a union on a communion on paper, but there's an actual uh, like incarnation element to it uh, as well, you know, incarnational element to it. And I, I, I just thought not many, not many people see these sorts of things, especially Roman Catholics uh, who, who often don't have an idea of the cat, like Father Deacon said that the Catholic church is a communion of churches. Um, and that's very clear within the Vatican II teaching um, uh, of that. And it's referenced in, in the catechism itself in the footnotes. So um, I just thought that would be something interesting for our, our, our viewers. Absolutely. Thank you, Father Michael. And, and while we're talking to you, um, being as you are the English language editor of Christ Our Pascha, um, I thought an interesting way and a benign way to look at synodality because this book that we're using is the process of the synodal, uh, it's a synodal process, right? This was born from the synod of the U Ukrainian Catholic Church. So, and it's a very, very beautiful and wonderful work. Um, and of course, we see many uh, different ideas floating around in the internet ether of, of what is synodality. Um, and what does synodality produce? So perhaps you could give us a little bit of the background and the history of where this catechism came from. Okay, I'll do I'll, I'll do my best. Um, it uh, it has to do with the fact that the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church is a synodal church. Um, however, as much as that is the case, the actual day to day working of it. Unfortunately, we're, we're not at the fullness of that yet. And uh, so when um, Patriarch Svetoslav was elected and, and so forth, he, he was the rector of our seminary in Lviv, and he's a moral theologian. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, he's very good, and he's a polyglot as well. He, he speaks, um, I, haven't, I haven't come to an end of the language as he speaks. I, I, I did speak to him once in Ukraine, and I said, do you speak English? And he says, I don't understand. But then I heard him the next day speaking English, and he's, he's quite, he does quite well. So, um, so he, uh, he inst he's the one who uh, instigated this um, catechism. Following on the steps of Cardinal Huza. So he was already a bishop, so the idea was there, but it's it's Svetoslav who's the, who got this finally pushed. So there was a um, a, a committee uh, of people charged to write this. The the third part is written by more or less by Patriarch Svetoslav when he was a professor of theology, moral theology, uh, at uh, Ukrainian Catholic University in uh, in Lviv. And uh, so the this was pu uh, published, and then it was presented at the Sobor, and this is a distinctive element of a synodal church, okay, because the, the synodal church, well, it, we call it like the synod of bishops that runs it, um, there is a gathering, that's what the word Sobor means, the gathering or the assembly, and it's of everybody altogether. It took place in uh, Brazil, and um, it was um, it was presented in Brazil at that time. 
uh, and it was worked on by, I know some of the, the, the priests that worked on this, uh, like there's a, a Father Bendik of um, one of our seminaries in Ukraine, and um, some other wonderful theologians that, that helped with this, because I was in contact with them when working on the English translation, so forth. So, uh, so the Ukrainian was uh, presented uh, uh, in Brazil, and then we were asked to, um, certain bishops were asked to, to look after the um, different languages. So there was a, a one done in Portuguese, one done in, I think, German, one in English, uh, one in um, Spanish, and so forth, because these are the larger um, groups throughout the world of Ukraine Catholics of these different languages. And so for here, for this, uh, it was Bishop Peter Stasiuk, um, who is in Australia. He's now retired. He lives in Canada again. Uh, he is from Canada. He's from Manitoba, by the way, Roblin, Manitoba. It's uh, the northwest corner, kind of. And um, so uh, he subdivided uh, duties to Bishop David Motiuk of Edmonton. So he was the local bishop supervising, and he asked me to to do uh, to be the editor. And there were three theologian priests who um, went through it, um, three translators, three theologian priests. And I worked uh, with Father Indirio Nofarco also on, uh, on this going, especially part three. Um, it's, it's a little more, it, part three is the hardest one to translate, the, the ethical, the, the ethical theology that's contained there. Um, I would say that uh, if the church ever puts out a, another big volume like this, uh, another way, I have some uh, suggestions would be that get your uh, editio typica or, or present it in Ukrainian first then uh, have all the different languages working all at the same time, you know, not, not sequentially, but all at the same time, because then with the way we communicate today, we, could, we can, if we find an error, we can alert all the other language groups. And then from that, we can get a typical edizio typica um, for, uh, for as, as the standard and everything. So um, now if you all have a catechism, I'm going to put this up. You'll see that and the icon on the front, which that icon exists in the cathedral in Edmonton, Alberta. You'll see that Christ's hands are both on Adam and Eve on the wrist, grabbing them out of the grave, right? This is the second edition. The first edition only has Adam being grasped by our Lord. And there's an error in it. 14 readers missed it. And it is... Paragraph 867. I have the second edition, so it's corrected. It says, marital fidelity is weakened and even ruined by deception, insincerity, jealousy, and thoughtless behavior. If you have the first edition, it says, marital infidelity is weakened and even ruined. And that has to do with how many times we went through that paragraph in order to translate it. Because like, I have all the editions, right? And um, it's that's my fault because I forgot to change the word back to fidelity and everything. You know, but it got changed in the second edition. If you downloaded it as a PDF online, it's the second edition. So uh, just so you're aware, Father, that must have been the influence of the German synodal way. <laughs> so the synodal. It's all that for the for the for the catechism um, is that uh, the, the 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 synod works. This this is uh, 
maybe you know father deacon maybe you can you can um, make a comment after this but um, many in the roman catholic church see like the pope at the top and then it's a hierarchical triangular structure we've all seen these things well i would say the synodal pro, um, model would be that the father of the church is in the center it's like an orange in the center and then you have concentric circles but they can still intermingle and uh so it, it looks at, at the whole rather than uh looking down hierarchically like that there's still a hierarchy but it's not as um uh i would say not 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 that it's not so defined it's not as so sharply defined and there's an ability for everyone to come together this is where the support everyone has an equal voice this is not that um um people all tree you know you know i have some people saying well you know pope francis said that everyone should get a vaccine and i said well that that's his opinion and they go oh, no what but he that's that's a teaching and i said no no and this is this is uh, something that needs to be adjusted and everything and i think the synodal model the proper synodal model as the church understands it is this this type of orange model that, that, that's my idea but um to, to help us with that you know so um the german model is not anywhere like that no yeah. <laughs> no so okay very good well thank you could i just make one comment then uh because i yeah. think it's noteworthy that this this was the fruit of a of a, of a synod of bishops yeah. uh and and it's the the first Really, it's a catechism of of a suiuris of a self governing church, which is significant historically, but I think it also speaks to the the role of the synod, which is to teach it and and to to first of all listen to the word of God and then to teach the word of God. That's the first obligation of a of a synod. If you read, for instance, uh, Dei Verbum, uh, you know this beautiful dogmatic constitution from the Second Vatican Council and it, it, it talks about sort of this posture of listening to the word uh, as, as sort of that's the beginning. It's the, the beginning is to listen first and then to speak uh, when it comes to the word of God. And I think the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church has, has done such a tremendous uh, service to the whole church, not just to Eastern churches, but to, I know some Latin Catholics that use this catechism as well, Father, uh, and, and use it as a reference, especially given all of its rich patristic uh, references, and, and, uh, and, and they make use of this as a way to inform their own teaching, and it's the word going out <laughs> to, to all the peoples, and it's, it has an evangelical uh, purpose as well. So I, I feel like this is a great example of the fruit of synodality that should be a model for all synodal work uh, going forward myself, so... Wonderful. I think that's that's true. You know, amazingly, when our bishops meet as the synod of bishop bishops, um, it is not in a hotel, um, as often televised on EWTN for the bishops' conference down in the states. Right. By the way, that that model of of conferences comes from the understanding of synodality uh, for which I believe 
that the bishop who ordained me brought up at Vatican II, Metropolitan Maxim Hermann Juk. So this is one of, I think, uh, I believe, I'm, I'm not, I believe I'm not mistaken, that this is one of his main ideas and contributions to the Vatican II Council. But they meet together in a center where prayer is the very, it's, the chapel is the center of their lives and their prayer together. And they meet together, well, we don't have how many, 200, I don't know how many bishops there are in the States, 200? I don't know. Um, but there's like 60, I think, uh, of ours. So I've seen the photos of the room where the, the, they, they always sit in a, an oval or a kind of a square thing, but it's a long room. And so it's like it's getting, in order to get more people in, it's getting pressed against the wall. And so they're going to have to get a bigger room. So, but, um, but they meet, to, it's the meeting together and even the physical setup, there is, um, it's like Peter with the rest of the apostles together, you know? Um, and uh, I think it's, and the fact that they, they pray, they, they make it a part, a part retreat at the same time. You know, so it's um, wonderful, wonderful. I've never been to it in person, but I've, I've seen photos and I know people have been to it. They tell me these things. So, right. Well, thank you very much, Father Michael and Father Daniel. Um, okay, let's move on to what we should be talking about this time. But we do this. We have these conversations and they're rich and they're deep and we're, we're taking in a lot of information. So um, this webinar focuses on uh, Christ our Pascha, paragraphs 327 through 446. So this is on uh, the prayer of the church, uh, specifically the divine liturgy, a huge topic, and the sacraments of Christian initiation, another huge topic. So uh, we will try to do justice in the time remaining uh, to these huge topics. So um, let's start with liturgy. So Christ our Pascha number 344 um, talks about the concept of liturgy as the foundation and summit of the church's life. That's beautiful, foundation and summit of the church's life. So Father, uh, Father Daniel, um, how do we understand and live this out? And specifically, what's the role of the laity in our common liturgical life? Well, I, I think this understanding of liturgy as uh, the center of the church's life is very much reflective of the vocation to be a human being. To, to, to be a human person is to be, in essence, a liturgical, a liturgical being, a liturgical person. And we see this going all the way back to creation itself, right? Because when, when God made uh, the man and the woman, uh, we are a composite of both material and spiritual being. We, in one sense, uh, not only are the image and likeness of God, but we're created as sort of a bridge, if you will, a microcosm of the macrocosmos. And in that sense, as human beings, we represent sort of the, the interface uh, and, and act as mediators between the material and the spiritual realms. It's sort of, there's sort of an organic connection to us being uh, true natural priests uh, in the world. And it's noteworthy that in, in the book of Genesis, uh, when, when God commissions Adam to, for his particular tasks, you know, he, there, there's, uh, the words that are used are to cultivate and to keep the garden. This is the primary task of Adam the gardener. He's to cultivate and to keep. Uh, well, those are the same words in, in Hebrew that are actually used to describe the priestly tasks 
in the tabernacle. So one, one thing that's important to understand when we read Genesis, we have to read it through the lens of the Exodus because Genesis in one, in a very real sense, functions as a catechism for the, its putative audience, which is the Exodus generation to understand how is this big tabernacle in the middle of the wilderness with the Shekinah glory cloud, you know, hovering overhead? How do we get here? You know, who is this God that Moses is telling us about and so forth and so on? And who, how do we have these priests? And, and why is this such an important central part of our life? Well, it's all about living in the presence of God. Liturgy is really life in the presence of God uh, and, uh, and, and how we approach God, how we approach liturgically the mountain of god which is what the the rabbis say eden was a mountain um and so now that we've experienced the exile we've we've descended the mountain and and uh, we're at the gate and we see the the cherubim there and we're you know we're lamenting and repenting and offering god worship which is what we're all called to do that is the human vocation to take what god has given us and, uh, and, and condescended to give us all the good things and to offer it back to him. This is, this is the priestly vocation. Now, how do we apply that in our parishioners, with our parishioners in our parochial life? Well, well the, the ordained priesthood is not the center <laughs> of, of parochial life. And this is an important thing I think some people really need to understand. When I was first ordained a priest, it was May uh, 2nd, 2020. I was a covid baby priest it was the feast of saint athanasius of alexandria i had sunday liturgy the next day and on my first homily i said my priesthood is in service to your priesthood my service is in priest is in service to to yours to get you activated to animate your charisms to get you to realize your full vocation to offer worship to god i am there as as someone certainly representing jesus christ uh, someone who is ordained to serve in the name of Christ, but I'm, I'm there also to offer worship and to help lead the congregation to make that offering. Um, we have a um, wonderful uh, family that prepares the prosphora bread uh, for us, and we use the big loaf, so we don't do any of the pre-cuts. We do the, we do the big loaf with the lamb, you know, like you're supposed to, and uh, so she comes to the, to the north door, and she brings it to me, and, and I told her the other day, I said, you know, this is the perfect image of, of salvation, I said, I said, look at what you've done. I said, you've, you've taken and in prayer, you've created the, the, the prosphora. You know, you've, you've used your own labor, your own sweat, your own resources, you've created this. And now what are you doing? You're bringing it to the priest who is then going to take this labor of yours in making the prosphora bread and through the grace of the Holy Spirit is going to be offered to God and it's going to be changed into the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what salvation is. It's us bringing our works to God, him transforming it and, and, and supernaturalizing it and making it part of our sanctification. And that to me is what uh, our, our common priesthood and uh, the priesthood of the church and the liturgical life is all about. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, Father Daniel. Sure. Yeah, wonderful reflection. Now, I think... Something that is connected to that, and Deacon Anthony, if you can comment on this, because a particular um, kind of a unique part of the divine liturgy are the various litanies, the various diaconal litanies, um, where we kind of um, offer our petitions to God, right? And, and many of those petitions connect the church, right, that's present there to the outside, right? We pray for 
the whole world during those those various litanies. Um, so, Deacon Anthony, I guess from your experience as a deacon, um, those various litanies and petitions, um, why are they so essential to our experience of worship? Why does that have to be part of worship? So, like Father Daniel said, a big part of liturgy is us, you know, bringing ourselves, our works before God, right? And then the divine and the earthly meet. Uh, the divine liturgy begins with the invocation, you know, blessed is the kingdom of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that kind of reflects the theme of entrance. We talked about in the last webinar, the divine liturgy is about entrance. You know, heaven is entering earth, and earth is entering heaven. The two are meeting. The icon screen is a representation of that. So immediately after those words, you know, blessed is the kingdom, we go right into the litany of peace. And the first petition is, in peace, let us pray to the Lord. And we're reminded, you know, in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that Christ himself is our peace. So there we are, you know, united with Christ, standing where heaven and earth meet. And the first thing we do is bring the world and its concerns to God. You know, we pray for the church. We pray for our local communities. We pray for our nations. We pray for the world. So really, as heaven and earth meet, uh, we're there as intercessors. We're there trying to, you know, bring, present to God our concerns, our worries, our fears for the world, and have them all transformed. Now, the response we give is, you know, Lord, have mercy. We oftentimes think of mercy in terms of forgiveness, but it's a whole lot more than that. Uh, many of the church fathers would comment that how the word, you know, eleison is very similar to the Greek word for a healing oil, an oil used for healing. So when we're praying for mercy, we're not just praying for forgiveness, we're praying for healing. So we're bringing the problems of the world, the church, our communities before God, and asking for his healing. So that's really what, what a big part of what liturgy is about, is presenting the earthly you know, to the heavenly and letting it be transformed. And in those intercessions, we're doing that. Very, very nice. And of course, all of those petitions kind of come to an apex with the Eucharistic anaphora. And I thought Christ our Pascha did a beautiful job. It's, it's paragraph 374 to 383, talking about the various elements of the Eucharistic anaphora. Um, it mentions uh, Thanksgiving, memorial, offering, the invocation of the Holy Spirit. So, Father Michael, um, if you wouldn't mind commenting on one of those elements, I think one that uh, we kind of need to place in a, uh, I guess we need a little bit more detail on. I think, you know, Thanksgiving, you know, often people know, well, the word Eucharist means Thanksgiving, but memorial, right? Um, the Eucharist, our, our Lord tells us, do this in remembrance of me. So how does the Eucharist remember um what our lord did for us and and what what does that action mean in terms of i guess the dynamism of the eucharist if that makes sense sure um yeah i i, I would say that um when we use the word memorial or memory uh, most of us will think back in our minds we we have an event right? Or uh, we have a photo, right? Of, uh, of something like here's a photo of, uh, of someone, you know, just prostrating before the, the Holy Cross, right? And 
um, we look at it and uh, th th that's nice. Um, if you remember from the 80s and 90s, it, it's a Kodak moment, right? When the church, and I think that's how we understand memory and memorial in, in today's word. It's a, it's a recalling something from the past, but it still is in the past. When the church um, uses the word uh, uh, memorial, uh, a proper word that would be used right there would be amnesis. Okay, it's a Greek word. And I guess the best way to explain this is using the infinity sign. Okay, um, let me get a sheet of blank paper here and I'll draw it for you. Okay, so you can see this. And this is only because I use this sign often in my engineering studies years ago, okay, the infinity sign. So here we are at the present, right? And then we remember the past, right? Which, which in the, the Eucharistic liturgy, when we remember the past, it is made present. And when that happens, it propels us forward in hope for the culmination of that event and therefore making it present as well. Okay, so it's an amnesis, it's a memorial by way, by, by way in which when we remember, it is made present. And so there's, there's a memory that is going from back in time, through our timeline, right, which is Christ's death and resurrection. Actually, it's, the in, it's not just the death and resurrection, it's the, entire, it's the entirety of salvation history. But we're looking at the past and through our feeble minds our weak minds and and so forth so we know that our lord died and he rose his incarnation his teaching passion his death his resurrection right was some two thousand years ago so it's not that we make it present either it's that god allows us to be present to it and and that event to us and then but it's the entire salvation history so there's a there's a future part as well, which is the second coming of our Lord, uh, where every, everything, everything, the judgment, the final judgment will take place at that time. So we are present to the entirety of salvation history. Salvation history um, has to be understood. We can understand it through a se sequential, sorry, sequential timeline. I want to do this. I don't know if it, what, how it's coming up in your thing, but left to right, sequential timeline, right? But there's, there's all, but because of it's God who's involved in, in salvation history, it's beyond time, and so it's present for all time, and uh, so this is when we, when we talk about mo memorial. Now that that kind of practically kind of blows my mind because it's a mystery which we can get glimpses of, but we can't fully comprehend. Right, and 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 it's uh, the, the the term amnesis. This is exactly what the what the Jewish people use at the Passover meal. It's they're made present to the actual Passover. Excuse me, and uh, so that has now been given to us by our Lord in um, the the the. Uh, we even see it. It takes place in an upper room, right in the evening. Uh, late afternoon, evening, 
and then they go to the garden and then he's betrayed and he's taken before the Sanhedrin and finally before Pilate with all his torture. And then by three in the afternoon, he is, it's a 24 hour period where what he says and what he does are united. It has to take place over time for us because we are, we are that way. We're, we're, we're constrained by time and space. So I tell, uh, uh, you know, teaching seminarians, but also t- telling my parishioners, I said, the, the Eucharist is, is, is a, the, the anaphora is about salvation history. Uh, well, what, when does the body, when does the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ? Well, during that prayer. Well, when in that prayer? And I said, it's the whole prayer. It's the whole prayer because it's a moment, but we experience that moment over uh, 12 minutes or however long it takes for that prayer to be prayed. And next Sunday, it'll be a bit longer, you know, with the anaphora of St. Basil the Great, which, which, by the way, I think does a beautiful job of presenting this understanding of amnesis to us in the very words of the prayer. And I, and which is why I'm very happy that the whole catechism is hung on the anaphora of St. Basil the Great, because it, it, it takes salvation history and presents it to us as a mystery with, for, for us to contemplate. And so I hope that wasn't too confusing, but. <laughs> no. and, and could I just make a quick comment here? Because I, I think that father, that was, that was very helpful. I remember hearing you uh, speak once about Kairos and Kronos and yeah. the intersection of, of those two uh, mysteries of chronological time and eternal time and how they, they meet together. I, I think about this, especially like in light of typology, in light of biblical typology. And, you know, we, we sometimes think about the types, you know, these prophetic words, images, things, persons from the Old Testament that point forward as though uh, it's sort of like a, a code, you know, that we've got to sort of interpret that points forward. The thing I think that's really important about this that helps us to understand our own sacramental reality is that, you know, when, when, um, uh, when they were uh, at the night of Passover, uh, and uh, and so they they were you know eating the lamb and going through the the, the holy rites of Passover, and that continued. And so for those that in the later generations, this was a participation in that Exodus event out of Egypt. It was also simultaneously a participation in the Passover offering of Jesus Christ. Yes, yeah. And so in in one sense, there is you know through Kairos. Uh, even these things, they're not just, it's not just a code to interpret Christ. It's a way of, it's a modality of participation in, in what will be prophetically fulfilled. Our understanding of sacraments, of the sacramental mysteries, are that these are provisional signs that will ultimately be fulfilled eschatologically. And so I think about that prayer that you, I think we're also alluding to, you know, remembering the cross, the tomb, the resurrection on the third day, the ascension and the glory, the second coming, the second coming. How are we participating in that? The same way that the Jews were participating in the Passover mystery of Christ through their own provisional way of, of doing that, but it was pointing forward to something that would be great or greater fulfillment. I, I feel like in, in many respects, our sacramental theology taps into that uh, same understanding. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, Beautiful. And Father Michael and Father Daniel, just to let you know, I just finished my 
my intro to sacramental theology course in my, my diaconate program with Father Stelios at Byzantine Catholic Seminary. So everything that you just said resonated perfectly with that class. So we, we are hitting the bullseye in spades. So that's, that's wonderful. Let's be gone. Moving on, let's talk about the sacrament of baptism, uh, because Christ or Pascha uh, does an excellent job discussing the, uh, the mysteries of Christian initi- initiation. Um, now, just a brief story to kind of couch this next question. When I was little, I remembered my mom and dad talking about uh, christening, right? And I had this image of you know, a big bottle of champagne hitting the side of a ship because I had seen that in some movie or some cartoon or something like that. And it's, you know, oh, we're going to a christening. I'm thinking they're going to hit this poor baby with this big bottle of champagne. I thought that's just terrible. Why would, why would anyone do that? And I think sometimes we do reduce baptism down to just kind of, it marks your membership in the club, right? It's that, it's a rite of passage, um, you know, that's, that's at worst, at best, we, we have some vague notion about, okay, washing away sin. Okay. Um, but the catechism does a great job kind of, uh, opening up the various dimensions of what baptism means. So, so father Daniel, um, I know the catechism talks about kind of that new life in Christ, that dying and rising with Christ, um, perhaps for our audience who maybe hasn't um, gotten into the various dimensions of what baptism means. If you could break some of those open for us. Sure. Well, well, you know, baptism is also one of those topics where we could actually do a whole webinar just on, on baptism itself. Um, I, I like, I like the imagery of St. Irenaeus of Leon when he, and I've referenced this before in, in talking about, uh, and, and this is borrowing from Archbishop Joseph Raya, the church itself being like a mosaic icon and all these unique pieces that, that together form and reveal the face of Christ to the world. You, you could say the same thing about various biblical allusions, types, figures that uh, from the Old Testament, references in the New Testament that give us a, a full, complete picture, a mosaic about what uh, what baptism is all about? What does it mean to be baptized into Christ? You know, um, and uh, as we as we sing in the hymn, all you who are baptized into Christ, you know, put on Christ, hallelujah. You know, this this imagery of baptism is very important. So I think the probably the, the best two ways I can describe what baptism is all about, like, uh, you know, again, drawing on, on some of the imagery is to think about what actually happens in the moment of baptism, right? So if we think about in the, in the ritual uh, prior to baptism, what's, what's happening there? We have the exorcism prayers, right? And so in those exorcism prayers, these, these beautiful, powerful prayers, um, we're facing the West. And then at a moment, we turn and we face the East. We turn to the West, we renounce Christ, uh, Satan and uh, all his pomps and works and so forth. And we even spit sometimes, you know, it's liturgical spitting, so it's not, you know, actual actual spitting. And then we turn and then we face the east. Well, this this turning, this metanoia, this conversion, this turning from the dark, the area of darkness and uh, the, the, the realm of the devil is, is actually a, a change of allegiance, if you will, from one kingdom to the next. This, this is actually the meaning of faith. If you look at the Greek pistis, the, the, the word means allegiance. 
And so what we are what we are talking about is a fundamental change of our allegiance from the kingdom of darkness and the devil, the world of flesh and the devil, towards the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Christ. And we see that in the in the gesture of turning uh, from the west to the east. And what's in the east? Well, we see every church being that liturgical mountain of God. And what's in the east is the high place. And this is where God comes to meet his people. It's, it's a reversal of what we commemorated today, which was the exile of Adam and Eve. When they were cast down from the mountain of God, when they lost the garment of light, and we heard in, in the, the book of Romans today a reference to put on the armor of light. What's he talking about? He's talking about the garment of light that was lost by Adam and Eve, this, this royal priestly uh, garment. And when they were defrocked in their sin and cast out when they refused repentance, what happens? Well, the whole life of exile is looking for a res restoration to the very presence of God. And so they had to return and turn in their allegiance once again away from the kingdom and the dominion of, of the serpent uh, to the dominion, to the kingship of Christ. And that's, this is what's happening liturgically uh, in this moment. Now, what's noteworthy is that out of Eden, there came forth a river. Uh, there was a stream of water that went under the cherubic gate. So they were, Adam and Eve were blocked from getting access to the tree of life. And so they were blocked and so there was this body of water, and then it went off into four directions, this body of water that came down from the mountain of God. Well, in a very, in a very real sense, our entry into the water is the, is the path through which we pass under the cherubic gate and get access yet again to the tree of life in the Holy Eucharist. And so in one sense, you can see in this imagery of us, you know, in the turning away from darkness to uh, to light and turning away from death to life, turning to away from Satan to Christ and His kingdom, it's a it's a change in allegiance, but it's also a way of us moving back up the mountain of God. Now, the last thing I'll say about this is another reference, which I think is very much tied into the liturgical understanding of the Old Testament, which was at the ordination of priests. When priests were ordained in the Old Testament, what did we see? They were washed, they were vested, they were anointed, and they went and offered the sacrifice. What we do in the rite of baptism, we wash, we cleanse our bodies uh, in, in water, and, and, and through that sacramental action, it's actually cleansing the soul, but it's also consecrating, re-consecrating the person uh, to become a priest. They are vested in the garment of light, the light that Adam and Eve lost, the fathers say, was deposited in the Jordan River, so that when we enter into the baptismal font, just like we're entering into the Jordan River, we get the garment of light again. And so that priestly garment, that royal priestly garment is ours again. And then we're anointed in the power of the Spirit. And then we go and participate in the sacrifice uh, of, of Christ, uh, our Pascha. You know, it's an amazing gift that we're given. This is our ordination into the royal priesthood of Christ. And so it's not only our re-entry into paradise by passing under the waters, under, under the gate that the, the cherub, cherubic angels are blocking us to get access to the tree of life. It's also now that we can serve as true priests uh, in, in our Lord Jesus Christ and offer to God uh, back the, the creation that he has given us. So, 
So there is a way now of participating in the kingdom of priests that we are given through holy baptism. So this is, again, part of that mosaic. We can pull on a number of different things. It fulfills circumcision. What does that mean? You know, a lot of things that we can pull on to say, hey, this is what it means. But those are just two images that I think are sometimes helpful to think about. Wow. Absolutely beautiful. I, I hadn't heard that before, that, that, you know, that ordination into the royal priesthood of Christ. And that's especially poignant and beautiful in our approach to the sacraments of initiation, because of course, as, as Byzantine Christians, we keep those three together, right? They're part of that same service from, from the font to the anointing to the sacrifice. That's really powerful stuff. Really, really powerful. So thank you, Father Daniel, that I hadn't heard that before. It's I probably read it a million times, but I never made that connection. So thank you very much. Sure, and I'll um, tell you why. That's also why the fathers say that our priesthood is greater than that of Aaron. Our baptismal priesthood is greater than Aaron and all the Levitical yeah. priests. So yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. Just as a little note, um the Ethiopians in church when they gather for the eucharist they all dressed in white their their oh. priestly garments uh, like i think it's quite amazing and anyway, just a little for oh. those who don't know <laughs> beautiful beautiful we'll have to find an ethiopian uh catholic priest and have him on as one of our guests at some point i think that'd be a great idea <laughs> that'd, that'd be a lot of fun a lot That's of fun right all right, uh, moving on, this, the, the mystery of chrismation. Um, as we just mentioned, one thing that, that uh, a particular sacramental strength of the Christian East is that maintaining baptism, chrismation, and Eucharist as the sacraments of initiation and all celebrated at the same time, generally speaking. Um, so Deacon Anthony, why is this order important? Um, especially in regard to the mystery of chrismation. Certainly. So, you know, baptism unites us with Christ's death and resurrection, the Paschal mystery. This Paschal mystery was really completed when Christ sent the Holy Spirit. He sent the gift of the Holy Spirit to the apostles. So, in the, from the very beginnings of Christianity, uh, chrismation, you know, confirmation, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit was united with baptism. Really, it was always seen as the completion of baptism. You know, just as Paschal mystery was sealed with the descent of the Holy Spirit, our baptism is sealed with us receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, so that's why it's important. When you have them together like this, that symbolism and also that meaning of it being a gift of the Holy Spirit, the completion of our baptism makes sense. When you separate them, especially when you separate them by many years, uh, that meaning gets lost. It's not as clear to people. And what I've seen happen, unfortunately, is that people no longer see the Holy Spirit as a gift, but rather they see chrismation as something that they have to earn. And um, sadly, that's very common in, in some Roman Catholic dioceses, not all, but, but in some, where to be chrismated, to, confirmed as they call it, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, you have to take a bunch of tests, you have to do a big service project, and if you don't go to the classes, if you don't take the tests and pass them. If you don't complete the service project, you have not earned your confirmation. And uh, I, that's not what it's about. It's a gift given to strengthen us. It's the completion of our baptism. So I think the fact that we keep them together prevents that misunderstanding from taking place. 
uh, because the way it currently operates in many Roman Catholic dioceses, that misunderstanding is very, very widespread. Very good. Father Michael, Father Daniel, anything to add to Deacon Anthony's answer? The, the, the catechism points out a little something which I think is important to understand in our identity in Christ, which is the the three the three immunera of Christ. You know, so that um, it speaks about the royal, the priestly, and prophetic ministries, right? That that are found in their fullness in Jesus Christ, and once we become incorporated in Christ in baptism, and then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, um, the 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 seal of that baptism, a personal Pentecost, right? Now, even as an infant, you're a full contributing member of the body of Christ. We don't have to wait to a certain age of, of reason, right? Um, um, just a tangent. When I was a new priest, there was always first communion in our in our in our Ukraine Catholic Church here, and we were taught in the seminary, no, they should be receiving communion at the time of baptism right and they said well they don't understand what it is and i I would just say do you understand what the eucharist is like do you understand it's in its entirety complexity and so forth and everything i said i'm a priest and i don't understand it fully and and so so it's the same thing with with chrismation uh father deacon i think you made a good point that it, it can't be something earned it's 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 salvation it's a gift from god in order to uh, bring us to a point whereby we can participate with Christ in his ministry of reconciling everything back to the Father. That which he broke, he emptied himself to become like us and always accept sin so that we could fully participate uh, as a priestly people in that triune life of the Trinity. So these three mutera of of, uh, royal, priestly, and prophetic are found basically like ruling, um, sacrifice, offering, and then prophetic could be teaching and so forth. But prophetic is not just just teaching, it's it's also a calling out to come back, you know. And I think this is an important aspect that in Pentecost, um, the apostles and disciples were given the gift of the holy spirit so that they could go out and continue and share in the mission of christ to the world and 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 that that's in three ways Mm -hmm. as a prophet as a priest and as a king and that that we we these are part of who we are as as the body of christ and we often forget that we often forget we father daniel you said early that you know, many people center upon the priest at the liturgy and in the parish and everything. He's going to do all that. And I said, uh, and uh, I've mentioned to my own person, I said, no, 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 no. I'm here for you and yeah. you are for the world, you know, to go out into the world and everything. So, uh, to, but it's to have that realization of the gift that God gives to us. And then in earnest to ask him, Lord, reveal that to me like on our personal prayer, reveal that to me so that I may participate in your mission to the world, you know, and, and, and he will, you know, we ask him, he'll, he'll give us the answer. We, it may not come like McDonald's coffee through the drive-through, but it'll come, you know, so. 
Well, and Father, I think I think this also ties back very nicely to Meet Fair Sunday, the Sunday of the Last Judgment. You know, and and you know when when Christ judges the nation, separating them out like like sheep and goats, the criteria, you know, we're we're judged by love, we're uh, based on on our love, right? This is, but it's not just even deeds that we need to engage in. It's I think to your point, it's it's part of our co-redemptive calling that we are to be co-redeemers with Christ. And we do that through the, the spiritual and corporal works of mercy, especially. Um, and that comes to us as part of our baptismal vocation. Yep. And, and chrismation is, but that's the power that, that we need, the Holy Spirit, to, uh, uh, to be co-redeemers with Christ. In fact, I think it's interesting, St. Cyril Jerusalem, in his, uh, his uh, catechetical lectures, he says that one cannot be called a Christian until one receives the chrism. And, and because to be a Christian is to be an anointed one. And if you are not anointed, can you really claim fully to be a Christian? I, I think this is an important point. And I think I love the fact that we retain that unity uh, that Father Deacon was talking about, you know, with baptism and chrismation. It's, it's, an, it's important you know, to cleanse the vessel. But why do we cleanse and repair the vessel so that we can receive the anointing fire and power of the spirit? So anyway, I'll go on. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you, Father Daniel, Father Michael. And if I can just relay something quickly, because it's happened to me over the past couple of weeks. Um, Father Michael, you had mentioned that, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see as an infant, you know, these fully initiated Christians who have something to participate, who have something to offer to the church, right? Even in their infancy, they have something to offer to the church. Um, my five-year-old um, within the past couple of weeks um, has been relentless in asking my wife all kinds of catechetical questions during the divine. Oh, I think I froze. Oh, oh you're good. Okay. Oh, I'm good. Okay. Um, so my five-year-old has been relentless in asking my wife questions during the divine liturgy, you know, good theological questions, um, you know, he looks at the crucifix and asks, well, why, why did they do that to Jesus? And, and, and it's a great question. It's a question that we need to ask over and over again, and we still can't get the answer straight in our head. But my five-year-old, is he's thinking about these things. Um, and it's, it's nothing that my wife and I have done. You know, there are these things that they kind of come out of left field. And as parents, we recognize I didn't teach him that. Did you teach him that? No, I didn't teach him that. I didn't tell him to ask that question. Um, and it's amazing. And it's, it's a fruit and a gift of the spirit. I'm convinced of it. And I, I know those of us who are parents, um, I'm sure we've had that, that same type of experience. So it's, it's a very, very powerful sacrament that I know works through um, even the, you know, the, 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 the mouths of babes. You know, through the mouths of babes, you have found perfect praise. So beautiful. All right, we're running close to the end. So I think we can get through this last sacrament of initiation. We will not do the Eucharist justice in the time that we have left, uh, nor any amount of time that we could give on earth. So we'll, we'll do our best in the time that we have left. So Christ our Pascha, 431 through four. 446 so it's a lengthy section because you need that time um talks about the holy eucharist in its con in the context of the sacraments of initiation so i wanted to ask father michael um it might be obvious to some uh but perhaps not to all 
Um, why is the Eucharist kind of considered as part of the sacraments of initiation? Because it's the very, excuse me, it's not it. He is the very food um, by which we continue to grow in uh, likeness. Uh, I'll use uh, Timothy Ware's, um, uh, I mean, he's not the only one. I mean, many of the fathers of the church, but most recently, uh, Callistus Ware, Bishop Timothy Ware, Callistus Ware, for those who are, he has two names. Um, he, he has this beautiful piece. Uh, I can't remember the name. But it's in my files of, of just saying that the image of like, uh, we were made in God's image and likeness. And when we fell, the image is retained, but the likeness is that which, which kind of gets distorted uh, and becomes muddied, no matter of speaking. And baptism is that which cleanses, right? That, uh, that uh, likeness and restores it. And this is not just in the soul, but because we are, some say bipartite, others will say tripartite beings, right? Uh, we'll say just body and soul, that the, there's, a, there's an effect upon the body as well. And then chrismated, sealed so that we can with our souls and our bodies continue in the mission of christ but that that doesn't that's not perfected that likeness it has been restored but as many of the fathers wrote that even adam and eve in the garden would have grown in that likeness of god that's the dynamic part of life in god and it reflects the dynamism within the Trinity as well. I don't want to go there because that's a bigger conversation and and much more detailed, but um, and too complicated. But but for us, that likeness needs to continue to grow. And the food we need food in order for us to uh, be able to do that. Now, interestingly, Vatican II put it this way, and I, I think it's very good. The Eucharist is the source and the summit of our faith because the Eucharist is Jesus Christ, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, really the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Not really, not, not, I don't, when I mean really, I don't mean like eating flesh, we'd be cannibals. No, it's mystical, but it's real. That's, that's the important thing for us to understand uh, about the Eucharist. And St. Peter writes, uh, I think it's in the second epistle, uh, chapter two, that we are to become partakers of divine nature. This was the original intent that God had given, uh, wanted for us, to, that we participate fully in his life by grace as he is by nature. And the Eucharist is that gift of the very body and blood of Jesus Christ that's in heaven, that dwelt with us, that was tortured, that was crucified that died and rose from the dead. So we, as we rose and uh, we died and rose in baptism, uh, so we also receive his body and blood so that we can be more and more like him, more and more like him. Uh, I tell my, when they have solemn communion in the church, that's after first confession, they have a, there's a solemn communion. I, I tell the children, I said, what'd you have for breakfast? You know, fried eggs, pancakes, Cheerios, and stuff like that. Um, and um, I said, so when that when you eat that food, what happens to it? And it goes to my stomach. Well, what happens? 
and you know they get the eventual thing where it comes out they then they all giggle and everything but i said what's that digestion does the does the food change inside of you they go yeah it becomes part of us right i said great i said the eucharist is food we're going to consume the eucharist it's the body and blood of jesus but it's the only food that not only becomes part of us but we become a part of him more and more really uh in in our throughout our lives and everything like that so this is where it's the source but also the summit it's what pushes us and draws us at the same time and and I, that's short enough for now i guess <laughs> <laughs> beautiful wonderful thank you father michael um lot to contemplate there of course um that's the beauty of these webinars um is we're we're given so much uh, spiritual food to continue to chew on throughout the week. So um, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Um, eternity is very long, but we're stuck here in our own time that we have to stick to an hour and a half. So um, we did get several questions in the chat window. Um, Bianca will take those. And hopefully, I think next time, uh, starting with some audience questions would be a wonderful idea to, to kick off our next webinar. Speaking of our next webinar, uh, that will take place on Sunday, March 27th. So Sunday, March 27th, we will all be together again. Um, we will be uh, journeying through the great fast. Um, so that will be a, a wonderful experience for all of us to, uh, uh, to continue working through the catechism in our own Lenten journey. Um, so uh, until next time, um, continue to pray for Ukraine, uh, especially all the wonderful uh, priests who are uh, ministering to people uh, in the in the catacombs and out in the field, all of the the military chaplains, um, pray for the Ukrainian people, pray for the repose of the souls of of those who have died, um, and for a swift end to this conflict. Uh, know that we're praying for you during your uh, season of the Great Fast. Please do keep us in our prayers, and if there's any way in which we've offended you on this uh, Cheese Fair Sunday. Uh, for many of us, we've prayed forgiveness vespers. So we ask for your forgiveness, for your pardon, uh, and please do uh, pray for us. So uh, without further ado, thank you, Father Michael Wynn, for being our special guest this evening. Uh, we really benefited from your, your wisdom and your counsel. So thank you very much, uh, Deacon Anthony Dragani. As always, thank you, Father Daniel Dozier. Always a pleasure to be with you all. So thank you very much, gentlemen, and uh, have a wonderful, wonderful evening.